1 Samuel 14, the title of the message, Still the Lord's Anointed. I feel like, at least in my spirit, I've been on a bit of a roller coaster ride over the past many weeks. Somewhat conflicting studies. Two weeks ago, we spent our time considering Saul's pragmatism and warning ourselves against that kind of pragmatism in our own lives. Last week, we contrasted his pragmatism with the kind of tremendous faith that we saw in Jonathan as he stepped out in faith and engaged the Philistine garrison knowing that the Lord is not limited to save by many or by few and we applied that by by recognizing the need in our own lives for that kind of faith of, of understanding that God is not limited by our material circumstances not limited by the the things that this world would would say we need and this week we're going to kind of continue that roller coaster ride of emotions and considerations as we recognize that even though Saul was a man who was struggling greatly with faith and with pragmatism Yeah, he wasn't all bad. And though Jonathan was a man of great faith, he wasn't a perfect man. And things are going to, we're still going to see a lot of problems with Saul this week. But you know, we're going to find a problem with Jonathan too. We're going to start seeing some glimmerings of an issue that Jonathan has, recognizing that, that faithfulness does not mean sinlessness. I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, our, our, our lives would probably look a lot more like Saul's than Jonathan's many times. I don't believe there's anyone in this room who, who does what we do to blatantly scorn God, but we all have areas of our lives where we don't have enough faith or enough yieldedness to truly do what, what would be desired of us. And today we're going to see Saul try his best. It's not going to be perfect and it's not necessarily going to be all right. And we're going to talk about that. But he is going to try his best to do what is right before God. And, and, and he's, to some degree or another, going to kind of dig himself out of the hole he's, he's dug. And then we're going to see Jonathan do something quite wrong. And um, he's going to respond very well to it. But the shoes are going to kind of be on the other feet this morning. Saul was king. And regardless of his failings, he was God's ordained authority. And Jonathan is going to step out of that for a moment. And we're going to see some consequences in Israel due to Jonathan's unwillingness to remain under the authority that God has placed over him. So all of these things are going to kind of be, be bouncing around in our minds as we consider the context today. So we consider this roller coaster ride of, of emotions. And recall last week, the Lord used Jonathan to secure this tremendous victory for the nation of Israel. We left the scene with Israel coming together to fight against the Philistine army, which was still in total disarray. Remember, Saul and the 600 men came to the battle. Jonathan and his armor bearer were already were there. The Philistines were, were attacking each other and destroying each other. And then... Uh, the Hebrews that were a part of the Philistine encampment, perhaps slaves and, and servants, started fighting for Israel. And then all of the Israelites that were hiding in caves came out of their caves and started fighting for Israel. 
And unfortunately, as we step back in the text today, Saul is still making bad decisions. We haven't come to anything good yet for Saul. Notice what the Bible says in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 14. And the men of Israel were distressed this day. And notice why. For Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged of mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. On a day that should have been a day of absolute joy, a day of absolute victory, the text tells us that the men of Israel were distressed on that day. And they were distressed because Saul still faithlessly convinced that somehow he had to do something to win this battle. Still faithlessly convinced that somehow if he didn't act quickly and he didn't act in some right way, according to his own understanding, that his enemies were going to get away from him. He still hasn't fully comprehended the fact that his enemies, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and men like the sand of the sea were running around, melting away, and beating each other down not because of anything Saul did, not even inherently because of anything Jonathan did, but because God is a powerful God who used a man of faith to do his work. And Saul still doesn't get this. So, so he declared this. He said, I, I can't afford to lose a minute of time. I can't afford to have anybody lollygagging around and uh, nourishing yourself while we're supposed to be destroying the Philistines. So no one may touch any food today, and if anybody touches food, he will be cursed before God. And, and the king, you have to remember in the Old Testament, the king as the Lord's anointed represented God here. So as the king made this command, this was a, a command that held weight with God. That if somebody disobeyed this command, there would be an offense between Israel and God because the king had not just said, you may not do this, but he had sworn an oath that said, cursed be any man who eats any food until evening comes so that I will be avenged of my people. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where you've had to work hard on little food, you might understand the difficulty that the nation was experiencing here. When you aren't properly nourished, physical labor is extremely difficult, isn't it? Even not, not having water when you're, in, when, you're, when you're working hard can be difficult, but, but also food, you, 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 uh, you might begin to get shaky, your mind is not as sharp, you're not thinking properly, your perception is off, and if you're anything like me, when you get hungry, you get grumpy. And so the, the people were, were hungry, they were fighting. Uh, you, you think about fighting a battle and... Um, instruments of war and the kind of adrenaline that's pumping through you is, as these are life and death situations as people are actually dying out there on the battlefield and the king says no one eats so these people are hungry their, their minds are not sharp they're tired their perception is off and this is where Israel found themselves and so the scripture tell us, tells us that Israel was distressed on that day and so the nation is fighting and as they're fighting they come to the, this, this uh, forest and the scripture tells us that this forest had honey. And the honey in this forest was in such abundance that it was literally dripping out of the honeycombs and, and falling to the ground. Now, this is not necessarily an, an unusual thing for forests in the Middle East. Uh, as you look at history books and, and geography books and such, you'll find that there are these uh, forests that have wild bees and they create large 
honeycombs and, and these honeycombs will, will be so large and so abundant that indeed they will drip out of the trees and drip onto the ground. So they get into this forest, they're chasing the Philistines through this forest and no one touched the honey. No one ate anything on that day because Saul had sworn this oath. Except for Jonathan. Now the Scriptures tell us in verse 27, but Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. So Jonathan didn't hear. He didn't know that, that his father had forbidden the, the eating of food. So the Scriptures tell us in verse 27 that he saw the honey and he dipped the end of, a, of the rod that was in his hand into the honey and he put it to his mouth and the Scriptures tell us his eyes were enlightened. Literally, his eyes were brightened. Uh, the old adage says that the eyes are the window to the soul. And you can, you can see a lot about a person and how they're feeling by their eyes. You can look into your child's eyes and know when they're not feeling well. You can uh, sometimes look into your child's eyes and know when they're guilty about something or when they're lying to you because the eyes are indeed oftentimes a window to the soul. And as we think about this concept, when he got nourishment in him, his eyes brightened. He felt better. That's the idea that's being spoken of there. And uh, the problem is, of course, with this, that Saul had forbidden it. So one of the men, the Bible tells us in verse 28, told Jonathan this. One of the men said to Jonathan, um, thy father straightly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. So Jonathan is, is informed of this situation and, and we really can't hold it against him that he, didn't, that he did something that he didn't know he couldn't do. But here's where we see the problem. Notice his response in verses 29 and 30. Then said Jonathan, my father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if happily the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of the enemies which they found. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. Um, so this is where we begin to see Jonathan's fault. Saul, his father, was faithless. Uh, Jonathan, um, possibly because his king was also his father, was, was not afraid to speak against the king, the king whom God had ordained to lead Israel. And his words here are, are correct, right? <laughs> um, there's nothing he said here that's wrong. It, it was wrong of Saul to do this. It was silly of him to not allow the people to eat. But what he did was he publicly downgraded Saul's leadership in the eyes of the people. He publicly questioned the leadership of the Lord's anointed before the ears of others. So uh, because of the way he handled this rebuke, we see that he was not properly submitting himself to the authority of his father. He, he did what he was told to do once he figured it out, but not with the right heart attitude. We'll come back to this in a moment. The Scriptures tell us that for the whole of that day, the people fought with the Philistines. Um, verse 31 tells us that they smote them from Michmash, which would have been on that south end there. That's where Saul was originally encamped, if you remember that map from a couple weeks ago. And that's where the Philistines then had encamped, all the way to Ijalon, which is about three miles west. So for three miles, uh, Israel chased the Philistines, destroying them. Now, the unintended consequence of Saul's misguided oath 
begin to bubble up very quickly. The people, when they finally get to the next day, um, understand that they can eat now. And they could eat without consequence. And because they, they were finally at the point where they could eat without consequence, they also began to eat without discretion. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Because they were so hungry, because they had not been able to eat on a day of battle, when it finally came time for them to be able to eat, they just tore into the meat. And in doing so, they didn't take time to prepare it the way God commanded them to in the law, which is specifically to drain the blood from the animals before they ate the meat. Pastor, why does that matter? Well, following that great worldwide flood, you recall, in Noah's day, the, the flood that covered the entire world that the scriptures tell us took place, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, God allows mankind to eat meat. It's the first time before that. It seems as though God did not allow mankind to eat meat. But at this point, God says, every beast of the earth, every bird, every fish is for man to eat. But he also explicitly states that man is not allowed to eat the blood of these animals. Rather, he must drain the blood prior to eating the flesh of these animals. It may also be, uh, as, as I, I get back to this idea of uh, there's a debate, were men able to eat meat before this? Uh, we know that as animals were put on the ark, that they were put on two by two with the exception of what the Bible says are clean animals. And the clean animals were put on in sevens, not by twos. And so there were a number of animals that had, there were seven on the ark, not two of each on the ark. And so it may be that prior to Noah's day, or the, the flood of Noah's day, um, as in the law, they were able to eat the clean animals, but not the unclean animals. And then at this time, the Lord allowed them to eat any animal. And then it would not be until the Mosaic law that clean, only clean animals could be eaten again until the church age, at which point any animal can be eaten Again, so there's a couple of possibilities there, but either way, um, that God explicitly states that the blood of the animal must not be eaten. And he elaborates on this command in the Mosaic Law. In the Mosaic Law, the, the Israelites can only eat clean animals, and uh, those are animals designated through, through several different qualifications. And he also says here, he says in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 14, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. That the life of the flesh was in the blood. God said you may not eat of the blood of the animal because his life is in his blood. And we, we don't need to read into that too much, but God says I do not want you eating of the blood of these animals because the life of the flesh is in the blood. So he says before you eat of the animal, you need to drain him of his blood. And so serious was this command under Mosaic law that according to the law, if anyone ate of an animal with the blood, they were to be cast out of Israel. This was a big, big deal. But at this point, the people were so tired. They were so weary. They were so desperate that careful and deliberate, deliberate preparation of the food was, if you'll pardon the pun, off the table. They just dove into the meat 
And they started killing animals, cooking them, eating them without draining the blood. Now, there's no question that the people are at fault for this sin. There's no question that it's the people's fault that they were eating the animal with the blood. Saul didn't force his people to sin here, but he did put them in a situation where they were strongly tempted to sin, didn't he? He put them in an unnecessary situation. There's no reason why he should have withheld food from them that day. And yet they had to do it because he was king. And so he put them in a situation where they were tempted to sin. And in verse 33, Saul is told this problem. And he tells the people in the second half of 33 and verse 34, he says, ye have transgressed. He says, roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say unto them, bring me hither every man his ox and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat and sin not against the Lord and eating with the blood. So Saul does something right here. He says, okay, we have a problem. And the problem is that the people are so voracious, so hungry that they're not willing to take the time to drain the, the, the blood from the animal properly. He says, so, so do this for me. Get me a big stone. And they roll a big stone to him. And he, he adjures the people. He says, when you're hungry, bring the meal, bring the animal to me. And what they would do is they would slaughter it on the top of the rock. And so because it was on the top of the rock, as they slaughtered it, the blood would, would drain off the rock and it would encourage the blood to drain. And then they could just leave it there until the blood drained off the rock and, and because it was elevated. And then they could eat of the animal and therefore the the blood would be separated from the animal and it would be lawful for them to eat so so Saul does a good job here he does a good job of helping his people um, get over the consequences of his rash oath that he made now in verse 36 Saul wants to press his advantage against the Philistines here and he does it right this time he asks the advice of the high priest he asks to consult the Lord first so, so now he's, he's starting to kind of get a track record of good things here. The people are transgressing against the Lord and he says, okay, roll a stone. People, don't transgress against the Lord. Uh, slay your animals on this rock so that you're not eating of the blood. And then he says, now I want to pursue these enemies. I want to pursue these Philistines. Call the high priest. I want to inquire of the Lord. I want to make sure that God's okay with this. This is a great thing. This is exactly what he ought to be doing. And verse 37 says, Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? Notice though, it says in verse 37, but he answered him not that day. God did not answer. Now it's one thing to get a, a yes, or it's one thing to get a no, but not getting an answer was not not a, a usual thing. This was not to be expected. This, this is not what, what they, certainly not what they wanted, but this is not what they expected. They would have expected either God say, yes, I will deliver them into your hands or no, I will not. They don't expect silence. Saul immediately knows that something is wrong. There must be some national sin, some sin between Israel and God if God was not going to answer. And he's determined to find out what this sin is, where it is, who committed this sin. And he commands that all the people that were in the battle come together again so that they can determine the source of the sin. This is similar to what happened in the day of Achan and Jericho. But for all that it seems Saul is finally getting on track here. 
he's still being a bit rash. He's still being a bit impetuous. He's still not thinking through all of his actions. Notice what he says in verse 39. As he says, as he brings the people together, he says, For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Whoever it is that is standing between me and God, whoever it is that, that has failed to do what God has asked him to do, and so is, is being that, that um, person who's standing between me and God, or between the nation and God, I don't care who it is, even if it's my son, he will die this day. Who is it? And no man answered. No man said, yep, it's me. I'm the one who sinned. I admit it. It's me. So Saul says, we'll get to the bottom of this. And he asks the high priest to, well, presumably cast lots. It was a process of discerning God's will. We might liken it today kind of to drawing straws where they would cast lots and uh, wherever the lot fell upon whom the lot fell that person, it was divinely ordained by God that that was um, the one who had, who had done the offense. And in the Old Testament, this was a regular means. In fact, we see it in the New Testament as well. Uh, before, uh, Pre-Holy Spirit, this was a means by which um, God's people would seek the wisdom of God. And so it's possible that it was lots. Maybe it was the Urim and Thummim. We don't exactly know how they figured it out. But Saul says, I'm going to take the people and put them over here and I'm going to take myself and my son Jonathan over here. Is it the king's family that offended God or is it the people that offended God? And so they cast lots and wouldn't you know it, the lot falls on Saul and Jonathan. And so now Saul puts Jonathan over here and he stands over here and he says, cast the lot again and they cast the lot and it falls on Jonathan. Verse 41 tells us that, that it fell on Saul and Jonathan. Verse 42 says that the lot fell on Jonathan, that Jonathan was the one, and the Lord pinpointed, Jonathan is the one who has offended the Lord this day. So verses 43 and 44 tell us this. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan is very contrite. He recognizes his fault. He recognizes that, that by the, the decree of the king, he must die. He says... I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. And Saul answered, God do so and more also, for thou shalt surely die. Jonathan. Saul agrees. He says, yes, you must die. But the people stop Saul from killing his son, recognizing that it was the initiative of Jonathan that brought about God's deliverance on that day. And the Scriptures tell us that Saul did not kill his son. The problem, however, is this. Saul swore an oath that no man could eat, and if he did, he would die. Was it foolish? Yes. Does foolishness invalidate an oath? No. Jonathan disobeyed and he was condemned by the king to die. Saul didn't kill him. Which means Saul now had no means by which to inquire before the Lord, did he? If he went back to the Lord and he said, Lord, should I go after the Philistines again? He would still get nothing but silence. Because the offense was still there in Israel. The oath which Saul had sworn before the Lord that offenders must die 
was not completed. So look at verses 45 and 46 with me. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan that he, did not, that he died not. And notice verse 46. Then Saul went up from following the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. You see what just happened there? Saul was ready to pursue the Philistines again to finally wipe them out. But because Saul had made this oath, Jonathan had broken this oath, and then Saul allowed the people to stand between him and the fulfillment of the oath, now Saul knows he, he, can't, he can't inquire of the Lord. He doesn't have the Lord's blessing, and so he has to stop from going up and destroying the Philistines. Now, the remainder of this chapter considers the situation of the kingdom, an overview of people and events that sort of summarize the reign of Saul. He fought all of his enemies, Moab and Ammon and Edom and Zobah and the Philistines, and he was a warring king constantly in battle against someone. But he was also quite successful as a warring king, the Scriptures tell us, delivering Israel from the Amalekites and all those that sought to destroy them. Verse 49 tells us that Saul had three sons, Jonathan and Ishui and uh, Melchishua, and two daughters, Merib and his youngest daughter, Michael. His wife's name was Ahinoam. Saul's cousin was Abner and the son of Saul's uncle, Ner. And Abner was the captain of Saul's armies. All of this summary shows kind of the manner of the, the reign in Israel and it's going to allow us to pass some time without any particular events of note. Now the final verse tells us, verse 52, and there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. Final verse tells us that as a warring king, Saul took any strong man, any man of valor, and he took him into the army. And so pretty much the entirety of the men of valor in Israel were in Saul's army. And that, that brings us to the close of our teaching. And I'd like now as we transition to our application to consider three points this morning. There's so much that, that runs through my mind when I read this. So many nuances of the text and everything that's going on here. We could probably spend a month just teaching through what's going on in this chapter. We won't. But the three points I'd like us to consider this morning, number one, godly leaders don't just discourage sin. Godly leaders enable righteousness. Number two, bad decisions don't invalidate your obligation to honor and obey God-ordained leaders. And number three, godly leaders understand that they have God-given authority which has genuine consequences. These are going to be our points this morning. Let's consider the first one together. Godly leaders don't just discourage sin, they enable righteousness. We have leaders in this room today in various capacities. We have fathers. We have mothers. We have CEOs. We have uh, bosses of, of various types. We have men who have taken leadership roles in the church we have uh, older siblings. We have aunts and uncles. Uh, some of you which may have some sort of leadership capacity in your homes and families. In whatever position you may have, 
let us always be aware that godly leadership is not just about leading those under us in a way that doesn't ask them to sin. Godly leadership is about placing those under us in a situation where they are encouraged to do right. The people, through their weariness and hunger, because of Saul's rash and misguided oath, were placed in a situation where uh, it was conducive for them to sin against God. Again, we're not blaming Saul for their sin. Every man will stand before God and answer for his own sin. But Saul, as he looked ahead as a leader, was not thinking about what he was doing. He was not thinking, caring about the people as he made this rash oath. The people were weary, they were hungry, and they were placed in a situation which Saul never told them to sin, but where they weren't encouraged to do right. Fathers, you know, we can do the same thing. We may not encourage our children to sin, but are we encouraging them to do right? Church leaders, we may not encourage those around us to sin, but are we provoking one another unto godliness? Saul didn't think about the consequences of his command when he demanded the people that they not eat. He didn't consider that the people might be so hungry that they would forsake God's command regarding preparation of food because it did take a little something to prepare. He knew it took time and effort to prepare. Saul didn't consider that he had invoked a blanket curse on anyone in Israel to eat. Sure, Saul didn't command the soldiers of Israel to eat these animals with the blood. Saul didn't command his son to eat of the honey in the forest as they pursued the enemy. But Saul also didn't make it easy for them to do right. He didn't facilitate righteousness. And as a godly leader, we ought to not just make sin difficult, but we ought to, in our homes, in our lives, in our churches, facilitate righteousness. God is our great example of this. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, he said, and my burden is light. Jesus teaches here that if you come unto him, you, you must bind yourself to him. You must take upon him your yoke, a yoke would be that which held an oxen to the cart or to the plow so that you could plow your field. That was their yoke and it was that which, had, which facilitated their burden, right? If you yoked an oxen to a cart and then you put heavy things on the cart, the yoke was what held them to that burden. If you uh, put a, an oxen on a plow and you yoked him to that plow, the yoke was what, what, um, connected the the oxen to his burden, to that, that plow, to pull that plow. Jesus said that there is a yoke when you connect yourself to him. You're placing yourself under the, the guidance, under the discipline. You're placing yourself under the expectation of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and his righteousness. But he says, if you take that yoke upon you and learn of me, that yoke is easy, that burden is light. He says, I don't make it hard for you to do right. I don't make it hard for you to accomplish what I'm asking you to accomplish. The concept here is taught by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.13. You're probably familiar with this verse. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you 
to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. God doesn't shield us from all burdens and temptations as a follower of Christ, but He always makes us a way to overcome them. God has never backed His child up to a wall where He has no choice to do wrong, but to do wrong. God has never withheld sufficient information from His children to make obedient decisions. Our Savior Jesus Christ as a leader, He leads us not just out of sin, but He leads us literally into righteousness. David said in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. The Lord led him into rest. 1 John 5.3 says this, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. May I put it this way? The teachings of Jesus Christ lead us into a way of living that is completely contrary to the world around us, but is superior to the world around us in every way. There is no true believer on this earth who has experienced what it is to live in fellowship with God through the power of God's Holy Spirit who cannot say without reservation that there is nothing at all in this world, nothing that this world has to offer that can compare in any way to the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment and the contentment that comes from serving Christ. As this verse says, we, when we are in the love of God, not only keep His commandments, but His commandments are not difficult for us to keep. Jesus is a leader who doesn't just lead us away from sin, who doesn't just say, don't sin, but He leads us into righteousness. He facilitates in our lives through His Holy Spirit, through His Word, through blessings, through the fruit of the Spirit. He facilitates righteousness. As leaders, it is our privilege to follow the example which Christ has set for us. Not only to avoid explicitly leading others into sin, uh, not even just to avoid incidentally leading others into sin, but making it easy for others to live a life of righteousness. Fathers, I hope that you in your home discourage sin. That's like Christianity Fatherhood 101. But I hope as well that you encourage righteousness. As I thought about this concept, I was not very successful at quantifying illustrations for you. Maybe it's because of my minimal fathering experience with my girls only being three and a half years old. I know I'm also not a very good illustrator, which is why you don't hear illustrations very often. But here's the thing. Saul could have protected his people from their temptation to sin against God simply by allowing them to eat. By allowing them to partake in that which was wholesome, he would have protected them from desiring to partake in that which is sinful. May I say that again? By allowing them to partake in that which was wholesome, he would have protected them from desiring to partake in that which is sinful. I fear that as parents or leaders in any capacity, and this is just from knowing my own heart, we can get so busy thinking that our job is to restrict those who follow us that we forget that we need to offer them what it is to live a life of wholesome righteousness before God. That instead of always focusing upon the restrictions of what it doesn't mean to be a Christian, that maybe we, we spend too much time there, not enough time focusing on what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to have fun 
in righteousness, about what it means to live in righteousness, about what it means to, to uh, fill our days with the things of God. We see great battles ahead for our children, do we not? Maybe, maybe uh, uh, you're in some of these battles. Maybe you see them on the horizon. Your son becoming a young man, and as he's becoming a young man, he's no longer responding to authority well, right? Because now his mind and his heart are transitioning into manhood, and so he's no longer responding to authority, particularly his mother's authority. Your daughter is becoming a young woman and she is becoming more desirous of, of, of people that, that validate her, that make her feel unique, that make her feel valued. Your infant is becoming a toddler and you see that he is beginning to express his understanding uh, that um, what mom and dad wants is not always what he wants. And he's learning that he has volition and he can choose to just say no to mom and dad. Or he can just turn and walk away from mom and dad. And you're starting to see, and these are, these are all spiritual battles, aren't they? I mean, let's see these things for what they are. These are spiritual battlefields. And we look at those spiritual battlefields. Maybe husbands, <coughs> excuse me, as a leader, you, you see your wife and you see a battle ahead for her. Or you see her going through a battle. She's already busy and a new responsibility has been put on her plate or due to the needs of her family, she's being forced to, to make new adjustments, unique adjustments. She's being forced to juggle things that she doesn't want to have to juggle. She's being forced to make sacrifices in places where she doesn't want to have to make sacrifices. And you see the spiritual battle that, that might be beginning to wage in her. And as a leader, you see the possibility of these battles and you have the privilege as you survey the battlefield, uh, as you sit under your pomegranate tree, uh, as Saul did last week, as you survey the battlefield of finding areas where there are opportunities to sin, but also areas where there's opportunities to grow and to serve and to love the Lord. For that young man who's growing up, he'll begin to struggle with listening and obeying his authorities. And as I mentioned, probably specifically his mother, he'll begin to struggle with obedience to and attitudes concerning the rules and disagreeing with them and, and wanting to transition to himself and his own manhood. And this is normal. This is a spiritual battle. For the young lady who's growing up, she may begin to struggle with her self-image. She may reject responsibilities that might make her feel too much like she's turning into her, her parents or whatever the case may be. For that toddler, he may, may begin to, to learn the word no and use that word no and seek to use emotional manipulation to get his way. For the wife, her struggle inward could actually turn into resentment toward those who are heaping responsibilities upon her, um, toward uh, those that are tearing away her comforts, who are tearing away her structure. And she could become resentful over those things and, and become ineffective for Christ. And as a leader who sees those battlefields, as we see those battlefields, we can act like Saul. We can demand that no one eats until the battle is won. We can kind of hunker down, put our shoulder to the grindstone, and just push through it and hope that everything turns out well on the other side. But in doing so, perhaps we're opening up our family or our church to temptations that really don't need to be there. See, because what else can we do? As leaders, when we see the battlefield approaching, we cannot just say, don't do this, stop that, stop speaking that way to your mother, Go into your room and change. 
Don't say no to mom, whatever it might be. We can, we can confirm in righteousness. When you see your son becoming a man, you can sit down with him and you can say, yeah, I see that you're starting to, to want to make these decisions on your own. So let me ask you, what decision would you make in this circumstance? Let's open the Bible and figure out what God has to say about this. Get him using his newfound independence to serve the church, to serve the family. Show him the beauty of submission to authority, including his mother. Don't starve him for the battle. Feed him righteously for the battle. If you starve him, he might just feed himself with something sinful. When you see your daughter becoming a woman, show her what it means to be a woman. Lead her into the joys of biblical femininity. Show her what it means to look like a lady, to act like a lady. Show her what it is, however, to find her worth not in her appearance or in someone else's validation, but in Christ. Apart from her appearance. Apart from the validation of others. Feed her righteously for the battle. If you starve her, she might just find herself feeding on something else. Something sinful. When you see your wife heading into that battlefield, husbands, be her supply line. Spend more time with her in prayer. Listen to her concerns. Help allay her fears. Help remedy her trials. Maybe take some things off of her plate. Feed her righteously for the battle because if you don't feed her with righteousness, you might find out that she feeds herself with something sinful. Saul didn't look ahead. He didn't see the field. He didn't consider the consequences of his expectations. And in doing so, he set his own people up for failure. Let's not do the same. Leaders, this is, an, this, is where, this is where maintenance turns into true leadership. This is where it's not just maintaining what's already there. This is where it's you forging ahead and helping guide those under you into that which is right. Number one, godly leaders don't just discourage sin. Godly leaders enable righteousness. Number two, bad decisions, and this is not for leaders, this will be for followers. If I can call you, call us all followers, we're all followers of people, right? Uh, 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 we're, whether it's, whether it's a citizen following our government, the, the, the only person at the top is Christ. And so we're all somewhere below that, right? Bad decisions don't invalidate obligation to honor and obey God-ordained leaders. Israel's responsibility was not to determine whether or not the king's commandment was reasonable. As long as it was not sinful, it was their duty before God to obey him. Jonathan's responsibility was not to evaluate the merit of his father's decision. It was only to obey what his father had commanded. And may may I share a personal thought on the text here? God would not bless Israel because Jonathan sinned against his father. But the text specifically states that Jonathan had not heard the command. We talked about that. Ignorance is not always an excuse when it comes to sin, but it stands to reckon that Jonathan would have been naturally inclined to eat with no reasonable reason not to unless he'd heard the command. Why would God count this as a national sin? I do personally believe that God counted this as a national sin, not explicitly because Jonathan ate, but because after Jonathan found out that what he did was wrong, instead of validating God's righteousness and the king's command, he questioned the king's command. And in doing so, he showed himself as having a heart of rebellion, which in God's eyes reflected back on his sin reflected back on eating the honey. Had he eaten it in true innocence 
And the moment he found out it was wrong, he said, oh, I should not have done that. The king's, the, the, the king be justified in the eyes of the Lord. This was the king's oath. And had he validated the king's oath before the eyes of the people, I believe that, that this would not have become an offense before God. But because he showed a heart of rebellion and he questioned the king's oath, God reflected that back upon his action. That's, that's my personal belief about what happened here. God hates it when we undermine ordained leaders in our lives. God hates it when you undermine your boss before other employees. God hates it when you undermine your parents in the ears of others. God hates it when you undermine your pastor in the ears of others. If you're a believer, it is God's expectation upon you that you would submit in both heart and action to the leaders in your lives within the scope of their God-given authority as long as they are not asking you to sin against God's word. Now, the Bible commands citizens to do this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 13, to submit to government within the scope of their God-given authority. He says this in verses 13 and 14, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. We mentioned this several months ago. This does not mean that we roll over and allow the government to do whatever they want. But within the scope of their God-given authority to make and enforce laws, we honor the king. Don't speak against your president and snide in the condescending tone. Personal opinions aside, the Bible commands you to honor your king, not to undermine the leader of your people. Even Paul in Acts 23 verse 4, he, he was speaking before a group of leaders and he says to the man that's at the front, he calls him a whited wall. He calls him a hypocrite. And the man comes up to him and says, you would dare speak that way to the leader of your people? And Paul says, I'm sorry, I didn't know he was the leader. The Bible commands me not to speak against my leaders. The Bible commands employees in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5-7, through seven, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. These verses don't say that you have to like your boss or even personally respect your boss. These verses don't say that you should obey your boss because he makes good decisions or because he's worth obeying or because he pays you well. Don't obey your boss just to get ahead in some uh, hypocritical attempt to incur the favor of the higher-ups. Serve him with a genuine loyalty out of your love for God. That's what these verses are saying. Be obedient to your boss with 100% singleness of heart, not for his sake, not for your business's sake, not for your, your paycheck's sake, but for God's sake. Because God wants you to. Employees, singleness of heart is not just doing what you're told and then telling other people how bad your boss's decisions are. Singleness of heart is not doing the bare minimum to get by. Singleness of heart is when you dedicate yourself to the desire of your boss within the scope of his God-given authority. You says, what would he like done? How would he like it done? That's how I'm going to do it. Children, the command is given to you. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise. Children, obedience is not just about doing what you're told. Did you know that? You listening? 
Obedience is not just about doing what you're told. I tell my children, obedience is doing what you're told, when you're told to do it, with the right heart attitude. Obedience is not just an action, it is an attitude of your heart. If you're told to go take out the trash and you do it, but the whole way you're grumbling and you're complaining and you're thinking in your mind all those things that you can't say to mom, but you would say to mom if you could say to mom, that's not obedience. It's not. That is just as disobedience as if you looked her in the face and said, no, I'm not going to take out that trash. And every time you disobey your parents, you are disobeying the God-ordained authority over you. You are disobeying God. Obedience has nothing to do with whether or not your parents make good decisions. Obedience has nothing to do with whether or not your parents are Christians. Obedience has nothing to do with whether or not it is mom speaking to you or dad speaking to you. Obedience has nothing to do with what you think is best. Obedience has to do with doing what you're told to do when you're told to do it with the right heart attitude. Adult children, you may be beyond the days where you are asked to obey your parents. You've perhaps left your father and mother and you're cleaving into your wife and you are one flesh and you're your own family unit and, and yet the Scriptures don't give a statute of limitations on honor. In the same way, honoring your parents has nothing to do with whether they deserve it. It has everything to do with what God expects of you. Honor your parents. We don't honor and obey our parents because we see personal gain or benefit. We honor them because in honoring them, we honor God. Wives, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Wives, your submission to your husband is not dependent upon what you think is best, or whether you agree with his decisions, or whether what he wants of you is fair. Submission has nothing to do with whether or not you think your husband is a good leader. Submission has nothing to do with whether or not you think your husband is a good man. Like every other area of our lives, submission to your husband is actually... It has nothing to do with your husband. It has everything to do with your obedience to God your love for God, and your willingness to serve God. To speak ill of your husband is to sin against the God-ordained authority. To fail to honor your husband in your actions is to sin against God. Because regardless of whether or not you agree with what your husband says, he is your God-ordained authority. It didn't matter whether or not Jonathan agreed with his father's command. The moment he publicly spoke against his father's command, he sinned against God. And the moment you step out from under the honor and obedience of God's ordained authorities in your life, you sin against God as well. And this brings us to the third point. Godly leaders, number one, don't just discourage sin, they enable righteousness. Number two, bad decisions don't invalidate your obligations to honor and obey God-ordained leaders. Number three, godly leaders understand that they have God-given authority which has 
genuine consequences. Citizens and employees and children and wives and whatever other uh, realms of, of uh, followers we have here this morning, when you stand before God one day and you answer for the actions which your God-ordained leader has asked you to take, you will not answer for the merit of the action itself. You will answer for whether or not you submitted yourself. May I, may I say that again? When you as a follower stand before God you, for, for something that, that your leader has told you to do, you will not act, answer for the merit of the action itself. You will answer for whether or not you submitted yourself to that authority. When your husband asks you to do something, as long as it's not sinful, your accountability to God is only whether or not you submitted yourself to your husband you are not accountable for the action or the decision being made. You say, well, my, my husband told me that this is the direction our family is going and I think it's stupid. You're not going to stand before God and answer for that decision. He will. You'll stand before God and answer for whether or not you submitted yourself to Him. And that should take a weight off of our shoulders, shouldn't it? Wives, what a blessing it is to know that you won't answer for that. Your husband's the one that has to determine financially, has to determine um, practically the direction of your family, and he'll answer to God for that, and you just submit. Children, you don't have to answer to God for what mom and dad will or, or won't let you do or go or, or, or say. I mean, of course, we're talking about not in the realm of sin, but in the realm of, of doing you won't have to answer to God for what you think are bad decisions by your parents or, 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 or silly decisions by your parents. You will, that's off your shoulders. That's, that's their problem to worry about. You'll answer to God for whether or not you submit it. And that should take a weight off of the shoulders of all who are not in leadership in these various fields. Submission is a beautiful thing. It removes accountability in a manner of speaking. As a pastor, as a husband, and as a father, I will stand before God one day and I will answer for the decisions that relate to my wife and children, but I'll also answer for the decisions as they relate to this church. You as the church won't stand before God and answer for the way I, for the direction I take this church in. I will. My wife won't stand before God and answer for the way I structured our marriage. I will. My children won't stand before God and answer for how our family functions I will. All of that is on my shoulders. And men and women, the beauty of submission is that you can rest in the blessed reality that the decisions themselves are not your responsibility. It's simply your responsibility to submit. What this means, leaders, however, as I transition to the leadership here, fathers, bosses, mothers, pastor, is that the person who will stand before God and answer for these actions, these directions, these intentions is us that God ordained leaders. Saul was making choices here that were affecting lives, wasn't he? As leaders, our choices affect lives. Parents, don't think your choices are not affecting your children. Husbands, don't think your choices are not affecting your wife. Pastor, don't think your choices are not affecting your church. Because they are. Saul's son almost died that day and he should have died. He should have died that day. And it's not because of Jonathan having this awful heart of rebellion against God. It's because Saul made it really hard for Jonathan to do right. 
And yes, Jonathan made the wrong choices and Jonathan's actions. And if he died on that day, he would have died for his own sin. But Saul made some pretty rash oaths, didn't he? I mean, they just, it didn't need to happen. It didn't need to happen. And his son almost died for it. Proverbs 18.13, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it is folly and shame to him. This is what Saul, Saul did. He didn't have a good grasp on how his choices were affecting the lives of others. And as leaders, we need to grasp this. The way you lead your children matters spiritually. The way you lead your wife matters. I've often said that if I was not 100% certain that the Lord had called me to the pastorate and to Legacy Baptist Church, I would stay as far away from ministry as I could because it terrifies me to think that I'm going to stand before God one day and answer. I know that I'll stand before God and I'll answer for every word that I tell you during these these Sunday mornings. That's why I try to stick to the text because you wander away from the text. I'm going to answer to God for that too. Fathers, you have a huge responsibility. Husbands, you have a huge responsibility. I hope you see that. Godly leaders understand that their God-given authority comes with genuine consequences that, that decisions you make affect the lives of those you lead. As we close, really the lessons from this passage could continue. I said already, I I could spend weeks on this, but we won't. Biblically contemplating Jonathan's role, understanding the nuances of Saul's decisions, recognizing the victory that that was an extension of Jonathan's faith and then Jonathan's own failure. It's a lot to think about. And I encourage you to spend some time this week meditating on all of this. For today, however, let's allow these points to sink into our heart. Leaders, are are you leading others into righteousness? Followers, are you submitting yourself to leaders properly? And and leaders, back to you, are you leading with an understanding that, that your decisions have spiritual consequences? Let's close in prayer.